This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, such a powerful story. Stephen Flato is someone I first heard speak over 20 years ago, almost 25 years ago, in 1996 at a National Conference of Synagogue Youth, NCSY, convention. It was shortly after his daughter Alyssa had been murdered brutally in Israel by terrorists and in the many years since he has become an incredible champion for victims rights he has pursued the regime of Iran vigorously and earned a massive judgment a settlement against that state sponsor of terror he's a prolific author of hundreds of columns and now a book a memoir of sorts detailing all of his battles on his daughter's behalf and on behalf of other victims of terror and really all in all an incredible human being passionate Jew and defender of the Jewish people what a treat to have a conversation with Stephen Flato today meanwhile a reminder is always to subscribe wherever you're listening whether that's Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts SoundCloud Spotify Stitcher Overcast wherever you may be listening Chime in with comments or questions at JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook, and JewsYouShouldKnow with the letter U on Twitter. And now to our conversation with advocate, author, activist, passionate Jewish fighter, Stephen Flato. We are here with Stephen Flato, an attorney, author, an advocate, an activist. I think that's four A's right there uh, with a fascinating story, uh, a story that does involve some some tragedy, uh, but tragedy that has really transformed into incredible service of the Jewish people. And uh, I first actually met Mr. Flato about, oh, just 26, 27 years ago uh, at a Shabbat experience I was at through NCSY, uh, I, think, I think in New Jersey, if I'm recalling correctly, but uh, my first time seeing him since. So how are you? I am not going to complain. By the way, that's the first time I've ever gotten four A's in my life at one, at one time. <laughs> um, we're, we're, we're coping like everybody else right now. Um, personally, I feel very frustrated that I can't get to shul. Um, I learned my chavusa, you know, by Zoom, but but it's not the same having a guy on the other side of the table from you. My kids, I miss, um, but we do FaceTime and we do phone calls. I try to talk to them every day. And like someone said to me, you know, a couple of months ago, this too shall pass. I know there's a phrase in, in Hebrew for it, but I can never say it. Um, it'll pass. Um, I'm concerned about the future of Chinuch in America. Um, how are yeshiva going to adapt if they if they have to adapt at all? Um, I'm concerned about higher education, getting kids to Israel for a gap year. The midrashot and the seminaries are going to be, uh, and the yeshivas are going to be suffering greatly in the coming year if they're depending on American students. 
I know parents are very concerned. Um, and, and it's funny, um, you know, over the years, they used to be concerned about terrorism. And that was the question parents would ask me, should I send my child to Israel? And I always said yes. And now the concern is this, um, is this virus. And um, what's, if a parent asked me, should I send my child to Israel? What's my answer going to be? Um, I know that some of the, um, I can speak specifically about Nishmat um, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, what, they, what they are starting to do uh, as the summer program begins is to um, break the girls up into, let's call them, they're calling them seed pods. I, I'd rather think of them as silos so that they're, they're in the same group with the same, you know, eight or nine women all the time. And even within that, there's a bit of separation and things like that. So it, uh, the, the virus not only takes away our physical health, but it takes away our spiritual health as well. And uh, we're going to have to adapt. But if there's a people on this planet who can adapt, it's the Jewish people. We've been doing it for 2,000 years, and um, we'll, we'll figure out a, a, a way. Yeah, you see already in Israel how advanced they've become, how far ahead of the curve they are compared to the United States. So many breakthroughs reading about every day, and it's really incredible. Um, well, as I mentioned, I came across you first in, in 1994. I believe it was 94. I think it was 96, actually. My, it wasn't 96. Okay, that would, that would be my senior year of high school, so... Makes uh, makes sense, and uh, see your memory is a lot lot sharper than mine, and uh, so that's that's quite a while back. But uh, I've actually read many of your writings and and followed a lot of your advocacy work and activism work since then. But of course, there was a a long life that led up to that. So take us from, take us to the beginning, and tell us a little bit about where you're from and how and where you were raised. Well, the interesting thing is. Um I once read that it's the first 10 or so years of your life that really make the, the deepest imprint on you. And I spent the first 12 years of my life in a little section of Queens, New York called Middle Village. To me, Middle Village was our universe and it was our family doctor. We didn't have pediatricians and stuff like that. He delivered babies. He took care of you when you were sick. He took care of your father, your mother, everybody. We had our barbershop. We had my uncle's fruit and vegetable store. We had a movie theater. We had anything you could possibly name within the, the radius of this little town. A few years ago, I took my granddaughter Michal there for a, uh, for a tour. And when I plotted it out on the Google map, I realized that the first 12 years of my life was spent in an area less than a square mile. Um, but it was complete. There, there were three shuls within three blocks of each other, the, the one that you belong to and the two that you wouldn't step foot into other than for a bar mitzvah. Uh, the public school was uh, two and a, a long two and a half blocks away from my, from my house, uh, which I walked to morning, come back for lunch, go back after lunch and come back at the end of the day. We played uh, baseball and punch ball on concrete. Life was certainly, um, certainly simpler in those days. But the fact was, you know, we had everything we could want. And then uh, in 1960, we moved to Muncie before it was Muncie. I mean, there was some Hasidim there at the time, but not to where it became over the next, um, you know, 10 years. And, and now today, the community that I grew up in for the next 10 years was pretty much unrecogni is unrecognizable to me. Um, and there you needed a bicycle to get anywhere. Your mother had to drive. Your mother didn't know how to drive. 
So here was this, you know, five foot tall woman getting behind the wheel of a 1949 Buick without power steering with a cigarette dangling from her mouth, you know, driving me places to, you know, to get to pool appointments to go here, go there. And uh, then in New York, you could drive at 16. So 16 was the, was the big labor liberator. It was my uh, sophomore year of high school, and uh, which I went to public school. And that's when things, you know, began to um, open up. But it was not the city. I had an after, afternoon Hebrew school education, both in Queens and in Spring Valley. But I, I was very lucky. For several years, we belonged to a Reformed temple. And the rabbi, uh, Louis Frischman, uh, who passed away a couple of years ago, just understood what he had to do with high school kids and with college kids. And while I was in high school, he made sure that he always put together at least twice a year, a Friday night, where the students would run the services. Now, they're not what you call, you know, not what I would call orthodox services. They were, you know, reform services. We even read from a Torah Friday night in those days. And um, even when I was in college, he'd, he'd call ahead and, when is Stevie coming home for his break? And then he would sit down with four or five of us and do the same thing, maybe twice a year again. So I was no stranger to, uh, you know, synagogue life. But the, the real turning point came, uh, it was two events, actually, two turning points. The first was my father passed away in 1976. And I made sure to say Kaddish at least once a day for him for the, um, you know, for the first year. And I began to understand how synagogues operated, uh, at least on a prayer basis, what the routine was, um, how you accomplish certain things. Uh, the difference between Hagba and Galila, you, you know, these were things that we had never been taught before. Not that you would be taught them, but the real, the, the real change in life came in 1979 when Elisa was four years old. And she, to boil it down, she said, I'm not going to public school. Uh, she wanted to go to a Jewish school, and for some reason, my wife and I did that. Um, we were concerned uh, because our lifestyle up to that point in time had been what I would call a typical Jewish-American lifestyle. Yeah, we lit candles Friday night. I made kiddish. Uh, sometimes it was already dark when I, when I did that. Saturday morning was Saturday, and I used to bond with my girls. We didn't call it bonding. It was actually in those days it was going to the hardware store. Bonding is a 21st century term. And um, in the afternoon, it was mommy's turn to bond at the mall. Uh, we had all kinds of crazy stuff outside of the house, and the house we kept kosher. But we were, we were lucky to realize after about four or five weeks that we, how are we going to keep Elisa's head on straight where she's learning about um, the Chagim and Yom Tov and Shabbat and, and the state of Israel and then say to her on a, you know, on, on a Saturday, let's go to the hardware store. We, 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 so we started going to shul. And we were very fortunate. She was an excellent student. Sometimes we'd have to point her in the right direction on her homework assignments. But then she would dive into them. And she got uh, excellent, excellent grades. And she just... Do you have any idea what, what early on, she was four years old, what triggered her desire? She was in the Orthodox nursery school in West Orange. Which you sent her to because, just for convenience? It was the only one. It was the best one around. When we moved to West Orange, people were hawking us to go to the JCC. And in those days, you used to have lines outside to register at 4 o'clock in the morning. My wife says, I'm not standing on a line to send to the nursery <laughs> school. So you know, we paid the tuition. She went to congregation A, A, B, J, and D in West Orange. 
but she never came home proselytizing or anything like that. It was just, she loved the warmth of it. And even when we lived in Spring Valley for a year, she went to a, a nursing school at the, at the Reformed Temple, at Temple Bethel again, and she just warmed to the idea of Yiddishkeit. She, just, she never hit us with it. It was simply, we developed along with her, and uh, her four siblings who came after all followed in her, um, in her footsteps. And um, uh, now, um, I hope it's not embarrassing, my daughters you know, cover their hair, their kids are all in yeshiva. Uh, my son made Aliyah because New Jersey wasn't big enough for the both of us. And um, he lives in Yerushalayim. And my grandchildren, I have 16 of them, and they don't know it from anything but. You see, my kids growing up knew from the but. But my grandchildren don't. Did your wife have a similar background to you? It sounds like she also had grown up in a more reform kind of setting. Well, my wife grew up conservative. She said she was conservative. Which means, you know, the parents went to shul occasionally on Shabbos morning, then the father went to work in the afternoon, but they wouldn't, he wouldn't cut the lawn on Shabbos. You know, this is the type of stuff that we were used to. We always did two nights of Seder. Um, didn't know what the heck we were talking about, really. It was only until, um, uh, you know, the kids brought home the, the, the Jewish education to me that I was able to figure out which end, which end is up. And now... Um, 25 years later, you know, 25 years later, I got a chavrusa from Elisa's murder. I got a chavrusa. You know, we learn, I learn every week. I read stuff online. I'm, I'm saying Mishnayas, reading Mishnayas for decedents now. I mean, um, she brought me to some level. It's incredible that a little girl could have such an impact on generations, if you think about it. Yes, and it's in the book. It's all in the book. And we'll definitely, get, we'll definitely talk about the book. Were you practicing law at this time? I guess, was that always your career? I was admitted to the New Jersey, New York Bar in 1974, the New Jersey Bar in 1978, and I've been in the title insurance business since 1973. I'm one of those people who is very lucky. I love what I do. I just love what I do. Um, I am trying to slow down in the office a little bit. I brought in my daughter and son-in-law as partners, and I want them to do more of the business end. I thought I was going to slow down two years ago, but I wound up opening an office near our home in Long Branch. So that's where I am. That's the wrong direction if you're trying to slow down. <laughs> well, you know, there's, a, there's another thing. This, this office is a great place for Shalom Bias. <laughs> you can read between the lines. Gotcha. And uh, so you've been a you're practicing title attorney for many, many years, which I imagine is a very different kind of law than you would eventually kind of get into in terms of the advocacy work and the lobbying and, and all that kind of stuff uh, down the line. 180 degrees. But um, in any event, you had this sort of developing Jewish family and sounds like you had Alicia, your oldest, and then four that followed and going to Jewish day schools and developing and deepening your own family observance. And then your oldest daughter, I imagine, went to Israel to, to do a gap year. Is that right? Actually. Um... Elisa had been to Israel uh, five times before she enrolled at Nishmat in 1995. Um, the Nishmat program was for six months. She had taken a leave of absence from Brandeis University. She didn't want to do a gap year for, for a number of reasons. But as I said, she, this was her sixth trip. You know, from the old days of making, you know, phone, hearing from your kid, you know, once every 10 days to today where... You can Skype and you could, you, you could WhatsApp 
you know, instantaneously with the kids in Israel, she was away. And people would say to me after her murder, weren't you nervous when she was in Israel? And I would tell them I was more nervous when she was in Manhattan at a, at a Sweet 16 or at a concert. That's when I was nervous when she was in Israel. I slept like a baby. So her going to Israel in January of 1995 for six months was nothing um, out of the ordinary. In fact, we encouraged it. And frankly, she was studying the subjects she wanted to study. She she was moving up and up in her levels of chavruta with, with the other women. But more importantly to her, she wanted to be able to go to the Kotel, uh, not just to daven, but to watch. She was a great people watcher. And that's how she learned. She once wrote an essay. Um, she was applying for a camp counselor's position. She didn't get it because she was too young. But she wrote in the essay, I like to have friends who are more religious than me and who are less religious than me. So I can learn from those who are higher and I can help teach those who are, who religious standards are not up to, you know, up to mine. So she never shut anybody out as a friend based on their religiosity. She was a, a key machine. There's, there's a story I was, uh, I, I tell occasionally when she first started high school at the first school in Paramus, we were having Shabbos dinner and her phone started ringing in her room. And I heard the answering machine come on. It was one of her friends from high school. I said, Elisa, tell them not to call you on Shabbos. So the next week, the phone didn't ring. So I found out during the shiva when I was telling over that story that my wife knew that Elisa didn't tell her friends not to call, period. She said, if you don't have to call, don't call. She turned down the volume on her answering machine so we shouldn't hear it. Her friends were very precious to her. And when you ask her friends about her, the first thing they will say is her smile and her welcoming appearance or countenance. And uh, that's how I think of her today, with a big smile on her face. Uh, the last photograph we have of her was taken um, a week or so before she was murdered with a big smile on her face. And that's what she brought to her friends, was the smile, the encouraging word, the hug when you needed it, and to cry with you when you needed it. But at the same time, being the stern, uh, the stern mother, her roommate tells a story, which is in greater detail in the book, about how one of their classmates had um, gotten killed in an automobile accident in Long Island. And her roommate was simply distraught, absolutely distraught. She didn't want her to class. And after Lisa listening to her and holding her for 15 minutes, said, okay, get your books and go. And she went. She went, and um, people just tell you, you know, you hear these stories over and over about uh, of what she did in their personal lives and how she intervened. Um, now, of course, the family doesn't see the same thing, because I once asked her to help her brother, help her brother with his studies, and she basically told me he's on, he's on his own. I was on my own. He's on his own. So in that regard, she wants him to learn the way she learned, you know, not necessarily struggling, but, you know, face, face what it is and, and just, and, and just address it. So did she have any early ambitions? Did you have a sense of what, did she have a sense of what she wanted to, to do when, when she grew up, so to speak, what were her passions? It was only during college that I think she started thinking about what she would do in the future. For some reason, it was a, the realm of physical and occupational therapy was, was being talked about by not only her, but her other friends as well, because that would give you uh, the ability to work hands-on with other people. 
so I don't think that she was interested in having a legal profession or something like that. But the idea of working with people to make their lives better, I think, is what attracted her. Not that she, not that she was able to start any courses or anything like that. I think she was looking to finish her, her college degree and then see where life brought her. But in the back of my head, I believe that's the kind of, um, uh, of work that she would have been. Uh, I'll never forget when I, I was at, I was talking to a, a doctor one day. He says, so what's your daughter's major at Brandeis? And I said, sociology. And he said, oh, that must make you excited, you know, because we're, you know, not, not to knock sociology or anything like that, but where do you go with a degree in sociology? It's hard to monetize that degree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. We never heard that word monetized when I was, when I was in law school or college or anything like that. We said, I want to get a career. I want to be a lawyer. That's, that's what I said. We'll add it to the new, the, the 20th, 21st century dictionary with uh, bonding. <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. So, Elisa was, I guess at some point she was back in, in Israel. Was it after college? When, when did this tragedy occur? The middle of her junior year. I couldn't figure out why she was working so hard during her freshman and, and sophomore years in the summers also. Uh, she was taking extra courses. She had a game plan. She had a game plan, and it was important to her that when she went to Israel, it not be on that structured program that the gap year requires you to take. So she really loaded up herself for those first two and a half years of Brandeis to finish three years' worth of requirements. So she applied for this leave of absence, which they gave her. So basically, when she came back from Israel in the summer, the end of the summer, she would have started her senior year at Brandeis without losing any school coursework at Brandeis. So the, um, the terror attack took place in April. We had spoken to her the night before. She was going on vacation before Pesach. We would think of going away for Pesach as a vacation, but in Israel, she wanted to go away a few days before. Schools were closed. She wanted to get a suntan. And then she would do her one day of Yontif, one Seder, and... She'd be back home in a couple of months. And of course, that never happened. So take us to the actual uh, events, the tragedy that did occur in her, in her murder. Uh, bring us there and what happened. We spoke to her. It was late Saturday night in West Orange where we lived at the time. And it was 6 or 7 a.m. In, in Jerusalem. Um, she was getting ready to um, board a bus. And that's when she told me she was going to Gush Katif. Originally, she had planned to go with a couple of friends to Petra, um, and I put money in her bank account so she'd have enough cash to um, do that. But her friends didn't have the bank of dad at home, so um, they changed their plans, and, and, and frankly, Ari, I asked her where Gush Katip was. I know she wanted to get, you know, a vacation, right? I figured it was near Naharia, near Netanya, near Tel Aviv, and then she told me Gaza. So in those heady days of the Oslo Accords, there were people, we didn't have any illusions about what Gaza was like, but I had given Elisa rules to travel with. Uh, the first one was take a public bus. The second one was don't go by yourself. And the third was have a recognized destination in mind. I don't want you camping out in a wadi someplace in the Judean desert. And she followed my rules. So uh, she and two companions got on a bus and they switched another bus in Ashkelon. And that's the bus that drove into uh, Gaza and was heading towards the 
community of Kafar their own to let people off when a van that was parked alongside the road burst out, slammed into the side of the bus and exploded. The next morning in America, it was 8 a.m., I was late for shul, it was Sunday, and I turned on the radio and I heard of this terror bombing in Gaza. And I knew in my heart she was involved. I just, I just knew. I didn't want to go back in the house and um, alarm my wife with my feelings. So I continued to shul and 10 minutes later the phone rang and it was my wife calling to tell me she just hung up from um, the mother or father of one of Elisa's traveling companions. The, the bus the girls had been in had been bombed. Her friends were already back in Jerusalem, but they were separated from Elisa at the scene of the attack. Uh, I went home, obviously, and I started making phone calls, and uh, the American embassy in Tel Aviv located her in, um, in Beersheba at Soroka Medical Center. And after speaking to two doctors that morning who told me I should come right away, got on a plane that afternoon, flew to Israel to be with her. Uh, she died the next day with me at her bedside. And we decided to donate her organs. And because of the time frame and the flight arrangements, things like that, we, we couldn't get back from Israel to the States until Wednesday morning. So she died on a Monday. Funeral was Wednesday. And we sat Shiva for one half of a day. And then the next day being Thursday, we got up from Shiva Friday morning, Erev Pesach. And we were, um, we were just flooded with well-wishers. Just flooded with well-wishers. People making shiver because there was a line out the door. And on Thursday morning, late Thursday morning, early Thursday afternoon, there was um, a man sitting there with his son, very yeshivish to me. And I said, did you know Elisa? And he said, no, but we, we came to pay our respects because we had to. And even today, 25 years later, I run across people who tell me, you know, I was at her funeral. Uh, 2,000 people were there. And she just had this impact. And what I've done every day since then is try to do something in her honor that makes the world a better place. So sometimes I'm successful. Sometimes I'm not. I take the failures in stride. I don't let them get me down. And in 1996, um, I embarked upon the great adventure of trying to get an American law adopted. And let me tell you, legal training does not prepare you for that. It doesn't prepare you. The, the law was called an Anti-Terrorism Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, but it had a terrible hole in it. Uh, when it gave of the ability of American citizens to sue state sponsors of terrorism. And um, as a, a, my lawyer, Steve Perlis, and I started to lay out the parameters of this lawsuit, Steve realized, Steve Perlis realized that there were gaping holes in the statute. So we started in the summer of 1996, get the law changed. And I would go to Washington, D.C. at least once a week for the next eight weeks. And the one place you don't want to be in the summer is Washington, D.C. That's where I live, so. <laughs> well, you can cut the humidity with a knife. You know exactly what I'm talking <laughs> about. And I would leave West Orange at 4 o'clock in the morning, be on a, the 440 Metro Liner to Washington, D.C., get there at 8.30 in the morning, and then walk up to Capitol Hill from Union Station and start the day. 
if, if people have never been uh, to Capitol Hill, um, they may not understand that the congressmen and the senators don't work at the Capitol building. They work in these office buildings that are on opposite sides of the campus, if you want to call it that, up and down the avenue. And we would have an appointment at, the Senate, at a Senate office building in the morning. They would have to go to the House, House building later on that morning and back to the Senate, sometimes up to the House, it's up, to the, up to the Capitol building itself to meet somebody. And at the end of the day, I was soaking wet. I was emotionally drained because we kept telling people our story over and over and over again as to the need for the law. Fortunately, we, we had several good people back us up. Uh, Senator Frank Lautenberg from New Jersey, Congressman Jim Saxton from New Jersey. And there was really nobody who could turn us down at the end of the day. So we had a law passed in um, late 1996, early 1997, that became dubbed uh, the Flato Amendment. And we sued the Iranian government. And we got a judgment of almost a quarter billion dollars. And then we proceeded to try to collect on it. And that's when the Clinton administration stepped in to block our collection efforts. Not only block our collection efforts, they worked against us um, as well. So we went back to the Congress. We asked some new legislation. We worked on getting that again. Same, same story, trying to buttonhole people, trying to um, curry favor, trying to explain what we're trying to accomplish. And it was hard for them to, you know, to turn me down. But politics, politics did rear its, its ugly head. We had, a, we had a monumental piece of legislation adopted that uh, would allow us to see certain assets that we had identified, Iranian assets that we identified. But State Department and the White House insisted that it contain a waiver provision. Uh, in the event of national security, the White House could waive the provisions of the statute. So the law was signed by President Clinton on a Saturday, and Saturday afternoon he waived the provisions of the statute. Now, American Jews should be familiar with that so-called waiver provision because we had that same thing in the Jerusalem Embassy Relocation Bill uh, that allowed the president to um, waive the uh, provisions of the Relocation Act for national security purposes. And it was effective during President Clinton, during President Bush, and President Obama. And when President Trump came in, the law was still in effect. And President Trump said, I'm not going to waive the law. We're moving the embassy. So politics is politics. There's quids and there's pros and there's gives and there's take backs. And it's um, like sausage. They tell you that it's great to eat, but you don't want to see it being made. It can be, it can, it, it's daunting. Tell me a little bit about what were you trying to really accomplish? I mean, I guess there was no way until then to sue another government. Right. Well, there were, there were except, the, the doctrine is called sovereign immunity. And basically, it stops citizens from suing foreign countries uh, or suing a state for that matter in the United States courts. But there are exceptions for foreign countries, mainly surrounding commerce. If you're selling something to um, in those days, let's say Iran, because there were limited things that you could you know, deal with them business wise. And they didn't pay you, you could sue them in district court in Washington and uh, litigate the, the price or litigate the quality of the goods, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff. But when it came to terrorism, this was a brand new piece of law. 
why wouldn't that have been a, a no-brainer, like a common sense possibility? Well, the State Department doesn't want the courts, but more importantly, doesn't want individuals interfering with the foreign policy of the United States. And I was accused of that at a meeting with Stuart Eisenstadt, who was then an undersecretary of state. He's been on the show, by the way. <laughs> he's a fascinating individual. Fascinating. He's, uh, his, his son is my neighbor. So. <laughs> I happen to think he's one of the smartest people I've ever come across. I know that what he's done for the Jewish people is immeasurable. But at the same time, he made, he made my life miserable for three years. But that's okay. I, I, I didn't hold it personal. I wrote about him in the book in not a flattering light, but it's not out of animosity. And he sat across this conference room from me and told me with strength in his voice that nobody dictates the foreign policy of the United States to the, to the United States. And that's what he accuses of trying to do. In reality, what we were trying to do was get America to, to realize that there was an evil, evil regime there that had taken the life not only of Elisa, but other Americans as well over the years. And Perhaps by making them pay a financial price, it'll get them out of the terrorism business. The Clinton administration via the State Department, therefore when they, when they drafted the original bill, watered it down. So I came along and I toughened it. I took out a lot of the water and made it stricter. The State Department worked against us every, every step of the way, which is what led to that waiver provision, by the way, that I mentioned before. So. Uh, I didn't take what the State Department doing as being personal. People have said to me, well, they're just a bunch of anti-Semites, aren't they? And I said, no. Uh, and I still say no. They have a belief as to what America's foreign policy should be. And that belief is entrenched. When Donald Trump was inaugurated and he was starting to appoint people to various um, positions uh, in the administration, Iris Stoll, who was a columnist in the, you know, the Northeast, wrote a column about the Weebies. And basically, you know, America has uh, roughly two and a half million people who work for the government. That's separate from the military, who work for the government. And they are civil servants. They cannot be fired unless for real malfeasance or some type of crime or, or something like that. They're protected. And anybody who comes in to be at the top of an, of an office, whether it's state or commerce or treasury, runs across these career people. And their position is that we be here before you and we be here after you. Hence Ira's phrase of the weebies. And they can work against the people who have been put in charge of their own departments. So if you have somebody who is sympathetic to what I'm trying to do, which wasn't the case with the State Department, don't get me wrong, they will work against their own leadership to slow them down, to convince them otherwise. Curiously, Martin Indyk, who was an ambassador to Israel when Elisa was murdered, I had the opportunity to meet with him in his office, purely a social call, and he made a comment to me. He said, you know, a president will not go against his advisors when they're all in a row on the issue. If there's a machlokas, if there's a fight amongst them, then he may make the ultimate decision. But he's not going to interfere with uh, an administrative decision where everybody is in agreement. And then he said to me, unless there's pressure from the outside, 
And I didn't know what he really meant at the time until several months later when Hillary Clinton decided she was going to run for the Senate in New York. And it dawned on us that this might be the leverage we need to get the Clinton administration to change their attack. So um, Hillary had this famous meeting in Ramallah with Sua Arafat. Sua Arafat, the famous uh, kissing picture. That's right. It's in the book. And the story behind that is that Sua Arafat is um, busy talking in Arabic to this audience. And what Hillary didn't know was what she was saying, plain and simple. And afterwards, they did the famous kisses. And I like to think that as Hillary was being walked back to her car after this meeting, somebody hit her in the back of the head and said, what did you just do? Do you know what she said? Basically, she was blaming Israelis and Jews for poisoning wells, giving kids AIDS and leukemia and cancer and you name it. She, or it's just she, the basics, she, yeah. Right, right. And Hillary had a serious problem because the Jewish community picked up on this immediately. And I believe it was Joe Lieberman who convinced her that she has to make amends. And the best place to make amends for the Orthodox community was going to be the Orthodox Union in Manhattan. And he got her a meeting there, and I was asked to come down and ask her a question. So the question that Flato asked was, Mrs. Clinton, are you in support of the administration's efforts that are blocking victims of state-sponsored terrorism for collecting on their judgments? And she said, no. Well, you could have knocked me over with a feather. And uh, within a week or so, we got word that Jacob Liu, who was then the director of Office of Management and Budget, a firm man, who I admire greatly also. He's a treasury, he's a treasury guy now, right? Yeah, became treasurer under Obama. That's right. They put him at the head of a negotiating committee between the lawyers for the victims of the American government. And after about a year, they, they, they cobbled together a law that allowed us to obtain uh, 10% of our judgment and that the money, and not only us, but other families as well, and the money would come out of a $400 million fund called the Foreign Military Sales Act, which was money that had been set, uh, sent to America by the Iranian government for the Shah felt. And it had been in American custody for years, since 1978, 79. So the $400 million figure, we didn't think kept, you know, included interest. That was one of Stu Eisenstadt's sticks, I think. You know, don't tell them what the fund is really up to now because they may want it all. And as I said, we got, we got a portion of our judgment paid. Uh, we can no longer pursue Iran in America, but that hasn't stopped us from going out of the country trying to pursue them in other foreign countries. We're, we've been blocked by other foreign countries as well. So the interesting thing is America put this um, charge on this money and the plan was to reimburse the treasury for the payments that went to the terror victims. And it turned out that right before President Obama left office, he sent that money back plus billions more to the Iranian government uh, on a midnight flight. And he breathed new life into Iranian terrorism and trouble in, in the Middle East. Do you know why he did that? Well, the, the, the main reason is we believe that he was um, grateful for them signing off on the so-called nuclear agreement. Also, at the same time, they released, I think there were two Iranian-Americans that were being held hostage under both the circumstances. 
in Iran, and, and they were released. Publicly, they said that by doing this, we're saving the American taxpayer billions and billions of dollars in interest and penalties and things like that. I don't buy it. It was simply a political move, one that we should have been embarrassed of, and one that has basically fomented such hardship and catastrophe in the Middle East. The, the war, the civil war in Syria, the, the civil war in Yemen, Hezbollah, Hamas, are basically Iranian clientele. And until the new wave of sanctions was put in place by the current Trump administration, the Iranians were having a field day with this money. How did you know early on, by the way, that, like, why Iran? How did you know, as soon as Lisa was, was murdered, it was obviously, I assume, one of the terror groups took responsibility or you identified them. How did you, did you immediately say, oh, Iran? You're like, where was, how did that all even develop? The first thing was the day of the attack, Palestine Islamic Jihad sent faxes out to the news media and to people in America. You might have to explain to listeners what those are, just another uh, anachronism. <laughs> You're right. It's like me mentioning a phonograph needle. Uh, boys and girls, a fax machine was a device where you were able to transmit written documents electronically through the phone system. Like an email with paper. <laughs> yeah, followed up by a phone call. Did you get my fax? Um, we're digressing. So they, they sent this communication to the news media and to people here in America taking credit for this horrific terror attack. Actually, there were two terror attacks that day, one in Kafar the Rome, and one that Hamas apparently perpetrated further north that didn't have any real victims. But the one in Kafar the Rome killed eight and wounded over 40. And then as we were discussing the potential litigation with the United States State Department, who didn't stop us, by the way, uh, talking to us, they told us that Iran was a state sponsor of Islamic Jihad. And in fact, uh, we, we came to learn that they even had a budget line item for sponsoring terrorism. And we showed that at trial eventually. So we knew that Iran was behind Islamic Jihad, that it was behind Hamas at the time, but they weren't being punished. Iran wasn't being punished. So they were our defendant, they and their um, Revolutionary Guard and Ministry of, uh, of, of, of the Interior as well as their leadership, and we named them as defendants. Now, interestingly, we didn't name Islamic Jihad for a tactical reason. You didn't know how to find them. <laughs> you know, we knew that they had a guy in Damascus who uh, somebody killed that fall of October 1995 after Lisa had been killed, murdered. And um, we kept them out to avoid this round and around getting jurisdiction. So we knew that Iran was responsible. And they are still listed as the number one state sponsor of terrorism by the State Department. They, did they mount a defense? Like, did they show up, show up in court and there's a guy in a suit there with, you know, saying, I, I defend Iran? Like, what, how does that even work? Okay, you know, you, you hit upon something very interesting. It goes back to the sovereign immunity cases for commercial transactions. In every single one of those cases, the Iranians appeared in court. And they hired a well-known Washington, D.C. attorney. So as uh, Steve Perls and I were mapping out the timeline, we figured they would use the same fellow and it would take us 10 years to prove our case. Much to my surprise, and basically I think the State Department's also, the Iranians defaulted. They didn't appear in the action. But we still had to have a trial. 
So we had what's customarily called a proof hearing over two days in February of 1998. And we had testimony, we had documentary evidence, we had evidence that was put on the seal by the court because the way our attorneys got it was really below the table. And we demonstrated to the judge's satisfaction that Iran was the um, financial sponsor of the terrorists who murdered Elisa. And that gave them liability. And that's why he awarded us a judgment. Now, what, the, the timeline for that is very interesting because we had the trial in February. And middle of the first week in March, we got a phone call from our lawyers saying that the judge wants to render his decision the following Tuesday. And I looked at the calendar. It was Thomas Esther. And I thought to myself, how appropriate. Yeah, Persia, ancient Persia. Right, the successors to, to Haman are in control of Iran, the successor to Persia. And that was the day that we got our judgment. So reading the Megillah that night resonated like it's never, ever resonated before and since. Because here's a Jew who stood up for his daughter, for his people, and socked it to the Iranian government. Not understanding at the time that there were more troubles and travails that would, would come along um, our way, but we made law. Case is still cited today, and uh, actions brought against Iran and against Cuba and against the, against the Palestinian Authority as being a fundamental case in the in, in the war on terrorism. And uh, some people created the phrase "lawfare" to describe it. Uh, many are unhappy with lawfare because, as, as Stu Eisenstein said to me many years ago, um, which we talked about before. We're interfering in the political process. So other lawyers and other scholars have commented on that, and other people have said, no, this is good. This shines a light on what's happening in the real world, and it takes courage for a state to stand up and, and combat it. Now, one of the things that we don't seem to appreciate here in America is how the European countries have been working against American interests over the years when it comes to Iran. Italy, for instance, is one of Iran's biggest importers of Iranian oil. The Brits and the Germans are all trying to figure out ways because of the European Union, not the British so much anymore, but now the European Union countries are trying to figure out ways how to evade the Trump sanctions, the imposition of sanctions. So it's, it's what I call then, I still call no head scratchers. But, you know, geographically, they're around the corner from Iran, and they're kind of afraid, I think, of what Iran can do physically and, and electronically through hacking and stuff like that. So basically, I think they're paying blackmail. Did you initially, when you had this judgment, did you expect to collect? No, we, we, Steve and I we said, you know, this will be, we'll get a nickel at the end of 10 years. But once we got the judgment, Perlis and Tom, Thomas Faye, who was our litigator, they had the claws out. They were, they were not letting anything go by. And uh, the very first piece of property we identified was a a former um, embassy property in, in Washington. Uh, it was actually a, a consulate building that the ambassador resided in. And we went after it. And that's when the Treasury Department stepped in and started banging us around. And so that was, that was the reason for some of the other litigation that we, we had to... There's, there's no way to really... I mean, you can't go to Iran and say, you know, write me a check, right? So you have to right, find we, assets that they own elsewhere and... Right, exactly, exactly. So that, that Foreign Military Sales Act account was an asset. 
and the rentals that the State Department has been collecting on, on this house in, in Washington and other Iranian properties, which are kind of sequestered, was an asset. The biggest asset we found, though, was an ownership interest in an office building in Manhattan. And it's on Fifth Avenue. And it's one of these 40-story towers. And we learned that a, uh, an Iranian, quote, charity owned a piece of it called the Alavi Foundation. Now, the Alavi Foundation was originally the Pahlavi Foundation, Pahlavi being the family name of the Shah of Iran. And when the Shah fell, the Iranian government took over ownership of the foundation. But they gave it a really weird name. It was the Mustasaven Foundation. Mustasaven means um, fun for martyrs, something like that. And somebody then woke up one day in, in Tehran or in New York and said, you know, this is a crazy name for a nonprofit. So let's change it to Alavi. So Alavi means son of Ali. And that, that's who the Shias believe succeeded Muhammad as the, um, as the prophet. All the stuff I've learned, you know, you could <laughs> You could give a, a class in comparative religion. Yeah. So we claimed that the Alavi Foundation was a front for the Iranian government. Uh, we found textual sources uh, written by a, um, a finance professor in Iran who wouldn't help us in the case. He wouldn't give us an affidavit to testify. So we, we brought a seizure motion against the, um, the property. The State Department and Justice Department came in with a, a bogus affidavit that, that claimed we have no interest in the building. Iranian government has no interest in the Alavi Foundation or in the building. And my case was quashed by a U.S. District Court judge in Manhattan. Six years later, Robert Morgenthau, who was then the District Attorney in Manhattan, starts looking at the Iranian terrorism support around the world. And one of his folks looks at our case and says, what the heck is this building? Well, they did their own digging. And they realized it was an Iranian asset. Well, the federal government now hears this. This is even under the Obama administration, too. The first it started under the Bush administration. They say, my God, we've got an Iranian asset here. We're going to seize it. So everything that I had told them in the late 90s they now reversed themselves and said it was an Iranian asset. And several years ago, they started uh, forfeiture proceedings. Uh, unfortunately, those proceedings are still ongoing because a lobby didn't own the entire building. They had an interest in it. And if the federal government tries to sell the entire building, he's got a problem with their co-owners because why should the co-owner be penalized? Well, why can't they sell the stake? Well, that, that, this, is all part of the, this is all part of the argument. This is all part of the argument. Uh, because even selling a stake might devalue the worth of the building if it doesn't go for true fair market value. And everybody wants a bargain. So the lobby interest is still floating around in this office building, but it just demonstrated how the information we developed was accurate when we did. And the State Department could have taken a totally different tact in the late 90s instead of forcing us to go back to the Congress beating up Hillary Clinton, beating up President Clinton, and changing the law again. So to this day, have you collected? We collected 10% of our judgment in 2001. And that money was supposed to have come from the uh, Foreign Sales Act. But as Jack Lou explained to me, that all money has come out of the Treasury. But don't worry, we have this offsetting, offsetting provision. 
that was never honored. So basically the taxpayers paid us and the other victims who collected as well. About $400 million was distributed out of that money. Weren't you asking to create a law that would then be retroactive? Or it's at the time of Alyssa's murder, the law didn't exist or the provisions that you later lobbied for didn't, didn't exist. So how did you apply it retroactively? Ex post facto, which is what you're talking about, changing a law after the act, only applies in criminal cases. So civilly, you can go back ad infinitum? Well, I would think that uh, there might be a, a civil statute of limitations that you would look at unless it's been suspended, uh, which does happen occasionally with, in, in civil law, or they create a new period of limitations. They say, look, you know, these acts have you know, happened so many years ago, we're giving you one year or two years to start your action now. And that kind of revives uh, everything. But you have to hang that on something. Usually that type of loophole surrounds a person's age, let's say a sexual assault victim who was five at the time. And 20 some odd years later, they may be able to bring, you know, bring the action. They couldn't do it while they were, uh, they could do it while they were a child, but you no know, one never did anything. So there were, there were carve outs and there were exceptions. The biggest problem that, you know, that we have today is that, as I said before, the Iranians are still in the business. What I did, what other people have done, hasn't put them out. What, what Trump is trying to do, I think, is to convince them that the best way forward is to come to terms with your record and admit what you've done. And actually, when people ask me that question, uh, the, the question usually being, well, don't you think that America should have relations with Iran? And my answer is yes. But I think that Iran has to own up to what they've done. I mean, paying compensation to terror victims would be a drop in their financial bucket, really. But they refuse to simply do so. Well, we're the great Satan. America's the great Satan, along with little Israel. Jews, no matter what stripe we are, are all a target, a fair target as far as they're concerned. And it's just an evil, evil regime. Is anything ongoing at this point? Where, where are things right now? Well, what I'm waiting, waiting on is Mashiach to come, the Messiah to come, right? Amen. I guess we all are, and we're going to wait until he tarries. You know, he's tarrying. We're going to wait. What I'd love to see, frankly, is the overthrow of the Iranian regime. I'd love to see Iran, the, the new government of Iran, make amends for its actions over the years. I'd like to see them pay reparations to Israel, to Lebanon, Syria, Yemen even the Saudis, I suppose, the destruction they've, they've rendered there. People have died needlessly because of Iranian uh, desire to um, be the leader of the world. Tell me about the book. When did you decide to write it and, and why? And, and how, is it, how has that process been? Well, I started to, in my own mind, to write, it, write the book in the late 90s when I was on the speaking circuit. And um, I was going to different Jewish communities. I was appearing at City Hall. I was in the streets outside the Palestinian mission to the United Nations. And I said, you know, I'm doing things. And I, I started, like, writing down what I was doing. And I took one chapter and I tried to describe my day. But there was something missing. I wasn't really expressing why I was doing all these things and what kind of influence I had. And then a few years ago, I met a. Um, a book publisher, who said, you know, you have a good story here. I want you to sit down with somebody, and I want you to talk. And I met this 
professor. He teaches nonfiction writing. And we spoke for two hours. And within a week or so, a draft of the first chapter came back to me. It's the first chapter of the book as it is now. And the approach I decided to take was a nonlinear approach. So it doesn't begin in 1979 when Elisa goes to school. It begins with our 60 Minutes interview. And my writings were incorporated, my speeches were incorporated, and we just shaped it in, in what I think um, is such a beautiful way that it's a quick read. It's 210 pages. Many people have read it over two Shabbos afternoons. Some people, I know, they said they read it all Shabbos. It started Friday night. They didn't finish until Shabbos was over. But they read the book. And uh, I talk about my parents, talk about my upbringing, different experiences um, I had growing up that would make me who I was. And Elise's experiences growing up made her who she was. And it's a nice read. Um, we had a thousand copies printed. I think we're down to our last 50 or so. So we're getting ready to go back to uh, the printer and come out with a, uh, what they call a trade paperback. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a small paperback. It's, it's, a, it's a bigger book. It'll be the same number of pages. And, um, I'm thinking of writing the new epilogue to it. Now, actually, I, was, I started drafting the, the newest epilogue, bring people up to date. But the content of the book itself, to me, and I, uh, I hope this is not too conceited, uh, the content itself is timeless. It, it has lessons, at least. That was what I was trying to accomplish, which we finally did. The lessons that we pulled out of each step of the process. And I, I, just, I just couldn't get it down on paper correctly. Now I'm writing columns, mostly dealing with Palestinian terrorism, although I have a doozy that I'm working on about the difference between COVID-19 and polio and how the public is reacting to it. Because I grew up during the age of polio in the 50s. And uh, my mother used to warn me, don't go swimming. I was in Queens. Who had a pool? You know, but this is what we used to hear. And I think that's also why a lot of us went to the Catskills for the summers. For some reason, we thought that being away from the city, you wouldn't get, you know, you wouldn't get polio. But no one thought about Franklin Roosevelt, who was on vacation up, up in Canada, who, when he contracted polio in, in the late, you know, teen, 19 teens. So there's a lot to write about. Annexation, applying Israeli law to communities, Palestinian admiration and love of terrorism, their inability to say yes to an Israeli proposal, lots of topics. I try to put out a column a week, and they're generally well-received. Um, I've been called on the carpet by a couple of people that I've criticized, and they're welcome to do so. You know, I, I stand behind what I write. I try not to be personal. Uh, I try not to be uh, strident. I try to make a case for what I'm trying to get across. And it's, it's also over the last few years, I've accumulated 150, 175, 200 columns. And um, the work goes on. What's the book called? A Father's Story, My Fight for Justice Against Iranian Terror. Beautiful. And finally, just share a little bit about how is this entire process from, of course, the, the tragedy, the murder in the 90s, through all the advocacy work, through all the, the writing, everything you've been through, how, how do you think it's affected and, and changed you? Well, it's actually changed my entire family. 
And I didn't realize that until a couple of years ago. But at the very beginning, I learned that each parent reacts differently. I was fortunate. I was asked to tell Elisa's story for United Jewish Appeal, State of Israel Bonds, and other organizations. And I would go out and I would meet 250, sometimes 1,000 strangers, and I would tell Lisa's story about Yiddishkeit and Israel and things like that, but conclude with the fact that we're all in this together. We're, we're all in this together, Jewish life together, and that you've got to stand up and do, you know, do the right thing. Now, I began speaking literally at Elisa's funeral, my daughter Francine, um, who was then 14 years old, 15 years old, and turned to me and said, Daddy, are you going to speak? And I said, no, friend, I don't really want to. Just you have to speak. You have to make people cry for Elisa. And I got up and I spoke for a few minutes. And then I sat down and uh, she held my hand. Francine held my hand when I was done. And just by going out and talking about Elisa, it was very cathartic for me. First five years, my back would be drenched after every presentation, uh, which I learned is the way you, talking about is the way you overcome your survivor stress. Uh, basically, is, is what it is. But my wife couldn't talk about her at all. If you mentioned Elisa, her presence, her eyes would well up, tears. It took her almost 15 years to kind of put that. But that's fine. That was her privacy, and nobody, you know, nobody would invade it or anything like that. And then two years ago, Francine was getting, having a hard time with her oldest daughter, Michal. And Michal had just hit teenage years. So Francine said to me, I don't know how to react because, you know, Gail and I and Alana, we kind of laid off of you. We kind of laid off of you. And she didn't have the same experience doing to us what Michal was doing to her. So she didn't know how to respond. So everybody was affected. Everybody was affected. Um, I came across today a, a photo of, because um, I'm going through papers, I'm scanning. Uh, it was a, a short news article in the New Jersey Star-Ledger of my daughter Gail with Elisa's heart recipient, Jacob Salinas from Petach Tikva. And here's Gail. She wasn't even um, 19 years old at the time dealing with a guy who received Elisa's heart. But like we say, Gail is Gail. You know, she bounces off walls. Very resilient. But at the same time, inside, you know, she's a different person. The grandchildren are different also because they hear a lot of Elisa stories. Um, you know, for a young woman who had 20 years of life, she imparted a lot. Uh, we have four granddaughters named after her. And she lives that way. She lives that way. So at the end of the day, it is definitely a life-altering experience losing a child to terror. But it's a life-altering experience to any parent who loses a child. Because no one is prepared to address you. Rabbis, priests, ministers, doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists. A lot of it has to come from who you are yourself. And I was fortunate. I got up off the ground and I went back to life. Stephen Flato, father, author, advocate, attorney, activist. <laughs> I think I got all the A's and I, I threw an F in there, but I got one of those two once. So. 
just to keep you humble. <laughs> but uh, thank you so, so much for joining us. Good to speak with you, Ari. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.